Agents Podcast. Today's podcast is brought to you by Follow a Boss. Follow a Boss is the real estate CRM that turns every agent into a top performer. Follow a Boss is packed with features, but it's intuitive and easy to use. So agents love working with it and it integrates with everything. Use multiple lead sources. Guess what? Follow a Boss keeps them all organized. Want to try new marketing channels? Switch website providers? Plug them right into Follow a Boss. Visit followupboss.com forward slash lab code to see how Follow a Boss helps you close more deals. That's followupboss.com forward slash lab code. Okay, Lab Code Agents, welcome back for another episode of the Lab Code Agents podcast. And today, I bring you brilliance. Folks, if you don't know Jesse Bedoin, he is arguably, and, and very much in my opinion, one of the most brilliant minds in the real estate space. And today, we are going to blow your mind. Well, I'm not going to. He is. With his <laughs> knowledge and expertise about all things real estate, technology, uh, kind of maybe his predictions on where the world and the real estate world is going. Folks, you're in for a treat because Jesse is really, 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 really smart. I'm honored to call him a friend. And if you don't know him, you're going to get to know him today. Jesse Bedoin, welcome to the podcast, my friend. Thank you. I, uh, that's uh, way too nice of a intro for me. So. <laughs> uh, dude, but, but so true, but man. It. So true. Yeah. I mean, and I'm not the only person that says this when every time we get the opportunity to hang out, which is uh, right. you know, every, probably a couple times a year, I walk away feeling really stupid. And, but yet at the same token, I learned something. And so I enjoy very much having conversation with you. And I'm looking forward to doing it again. So let's start with this. Of course. I'm going to assume not everybody knows who you are. I know all of our friends, the circles we run in, everybody knows everybody, sure. but not everybody is in that circle. So tell our audience kind of who you are, what you do, uh, because okay. call action is a lot of people have heard of that, but I'd like to hear kind of how you got to this point. So give sure. us your story. Yeah, no problem. So the little backstory about me is pretty simple. I got started in real estate in 1987, my very first job ever. I was a telemarketer for a mortgage company. And so that was the start of my industry experience. Uh, at 18, got immediately licensed. And at 19, in 1997, started building websites. I was like, hey, this internet thing looks pretty important. Like, I think I should do something here. So I became a student of SEO, taught myself how to program websites, build websites. Uh, by 1999, 2000, I was generating about 300 loan applications a day based on the fact that I had SEO optimized uh, several different real estate websites, uh, mortgage websites, basically. From that, I went on to do some for sale by owner websites. I did one of the very first map-based websites that was FISBO. And I've always been a student of marketing. What I understood really early on in my business is that I had a hard time being consistent and making outbound calls as a salesperson. So I figured if I can create good marketing that attracts basically inbound conversations, there's a very high likelihood that I can stay in business for a pretty long time because that's the most difficult part of most businesses. So in about 2002, 2003, 
I was generating so much volume and in California where I'm currently based and where I was licensed, I could only do California business. So what I did is I created relationships with LendingTree and Quicken Loans and some of those companies. And I started selling all of my excess inventory of leads to all of those particular companies. So since then, I've built out some several other websites and uh, just have a ton of experience. Never have been out of real estate, really. <laughs> so uh, and knee deep in technology, really, since 1997 on the real estate mortgage kind of front. Watched the start of, you know, Trulia and Zillow and all of those kind of things. Watched that entire progress over time. And then uh, today, I am the founder of callaction.co, basically a lead management system that helps you automate all of the tedious outbound tasks so that you could focus on high value inbound conversations. And so we're taking away all of the hard stuff that is normally associated with the CRM, doing data entry, staying on top of my to-do list, making the outbound phone calls, sending the text messages, automate all the entire process that's repetitious and tedious so that what happens is when the consumer is ready, they're going to respond back to you with an inbound phone call or text message. You pick up that conversation. And as salespeople, we're going to do what we do best, which is have those conversations, build rapport, earn trust, show our knowledge, right? And so I just realized early on that salespeople are not admins. They're not CRM people. They're not database entry people. We're conversation people. And that's what we try and do is get people in the conversation at scale. Yeah, so a little bit of where I'm at. It's interesting because you said 1997. So I'm trying to think back and I'm thinking if I'm listening, I was, I am listening and anybody else who's listening (laughs) is thinking to themselves, man, what the hell was I doing in 97 and whether or not you were, you know, in college or you were, uh, you know, pubescent or you were, you know, beyond that and you were in, you know, in your work life, how many of us can confidently say we were actually thinking about technology and, and, and SEO and websites because you're lying if you said you were, because you probably weren't. I mean, that wasn't really even relevant or prevalent until, I don't know what, early 2000s. And you're, you were already knee deep in it by then, which is, which is a testament to your brilliance. And, and obviously, uh, the fact that you saw that ahead of most. And that is a good reason why, and I wanted to exemplify that to our audience to say, this is a reason why when Jesse speaks... I listen uh, because he knows what the hell he's talking about when it comes to this kind of stuff. Well, I just have probably, you know, a lot more experience. And, you know, if it takes 10,000 hours to become a master of something, I have 10,000 hours a few times over <laughs> in my lifetime of watching technology, real estate, and the mortgage space. So that might be, you know, a better definition. Not that I'm smart. I'm just a keen observer. And I, I like to listen and, uh, and, try, and constantly trying to learn. So. He's also modest. He's also modest, (laughs) which which is fair. But see, this is why, you know, when you and I were talking, so I was in LA like six weeks ago and Jesse and I met up for some beers and you, you know, you and I brought it up. I said, Hey man, let's, let me have you on the podcast. And your question was, well, what are we going to talk about? And I'm like, come on, dude, (laughs) we can talk about anything. And I kind of know how this goes. You know, usually it's conversational and it leads to whatever, but with you, cause I follow you and watch a lot of the things you post and watch uh, when you comment, because it's always very insightful and it's interesting. And, you know, you just brought something or we, where I kind of brought it up, was, which was your foresight to where 
you know, SEO and websites were going back then. Right. So as it pertains to real estate, you've been in real estate, everybody is kind of wondering, you know, we're coming through just a really weird, super unique time, right? First, sure. it was it was the sky is falling with quarantine. What's right. going to happen? We're all going to take out PPC loans and we're all, you know, our business is going to crash. And then all of a sudden, everybody got super busy. Uh, and now everybody's completely forgotten about using the call actions of the world and doing all the things that got them busy because they're super busy because business is sure. just falling from the sky. And now we're starting to think about the election and holy crap, what's that going to do to the to the economy? What's it going to do to real estate? So, Jesse, what do you think about all this? What do you think's coming? Where do oh. you know, what what is your opinion? Yeah, I'm glad that you tossed the softball out first. <laughs> I did. I did. I did. <laughs> you know, I've been through a couple of these cycles. So I kind of look at things that let's look at core fundamentals, right? What we do know is that most property in the United States is financed. That's kind of a, a known fact, right? We know that the lower that the interest rates are, the more buying power that we can leverage. So if we watch uh, the property values kind of gain, some of you who follow me may have seen some charts about this that I posted out um, using kind of Fed Reserve data from St. Louis. I've kind of based out this like historical rates, average prices, and medium income. And yourself as a lender, you definitely know that we have you know, debt to income ratios. So there's two ways that you could borrow more. You basically either rates go down or income goes up. And the reality is for about the last 20 years or so, income has been relatively flat. Like there is not huge gains in, in personal income, right? If you think the average person, if they're lucky, they get you know, 5% a year raise or something like that. Um, but the reality is that person that was making 30,000 is probably not making 60,000 today because medium household income is still only about 75,000 bucks, okay? Um, what we do have is a huge decrease in interest rates. And especially during this time during of COVID, which has created this kind of fog that everyone is in of like, oh my God, the business is amazing and everything. But we have two things that are happening. Normal inventory is about 1.1 to 1.5 million listings at a time, five to six month worth of inventory. We're currently floating on average right around 630 to 650,000 listings altogether. So we're nearly 50% off in terms of available listing inventory. You also have this pandemic, which created this perfect storm of people sitting at home and realizing, wow, my house, this roof over my head is not just an investment. It's a home and it's a place of security and sanctity in family and it's tapped back into maslow's core basically beliefs of needs of humans which is security community and all of those and we went from a while there where real estate was very aspirational of like look at i'm an investor and i have this big fat house and all that stuff and all of a sudden this was kind of a really quick reality check of oh wait this house is not just a house, it's a home. 
And this is something that I saw really transition like in 1999, 2000, right around there. Prior to that, debt to income ratios when you were applying for a mortgage were very, very strict, right? I remember telling people, listen, man, you got to pay down, you know, $385 on your minimum payment so <laughs> on your balance. So I could take the 5% minimum payment so that we're exactly at a 41.4 versus a 41.5, which would be classified as a 42 and you wouldn't qualify. 1999, 2000, 2001, those debt to income ratios went out the windows, right? And all of a sudden we're doing 60s, 70s, and sometimes a lot more considering that we had the liar loans and stuff like that kind of happening. And we put this new weight on FICO scores. But now, today, the thing that probably brings me the most concern is this weird storm of rates are near historical lows, they are. And that chart that I was telling you about, there's almost a direct correlation between a decrease in interest rates and an increase in sales price. Like it's very visual over a 30, 40 year period. Income has stayed flat. What, Income's probably what, not going to change. Why is that? Let's go back to that stat. Why is that? Why do you think? You know, I, I'm not really sure why income really hasn't, you know, accelerated greatly. Uh, but from like the 90s to today, like really income is still fairly the same. Like if you think we went from what, $4 an hour to $7 an hour to, you know, $10 an hour minimum wage, basically, it's like a 30% increase at that kind of lower mid-level stuff. At the top end, like someone gets a job for 50, 60 grand, like they're pretty happy. That's pretty good pay nowadays. <laughs> and it was back then, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so... So you still don't have, there's a reason why that aspiration of like, I want to make six figures is still a very big goal for most people, right? So what's strange right now is that we have these historic low rates. How much lower can they go? I don't know. But, you know, if we're at two and a half, like, can they go to zero? <laughs> like, will banks still lend at zero? You know, most of the time, if you kind of think about it, mortgage rates are people trying to get a return on an investment somewhere, right? It's packaged as an MBS, so they're trying to, to get a return on their money. So it's not going to go that much lower. That's kind of the reality. So does that stall out price appreciation, right? Because the only other factor that could drive up price is obviously supply, which we have decreased supply, which that is pushing that up as well. But the bigger issue is, you need to have ability. So it's not just supply and demand, it's supply, demand, and ability. And right now, the thing that is kind of interesting is that there's 10, 15 million people that don't have the ability, right? They're on unemployment, they won't qualify for financing, they won't do any of that. So everyone else that's left over, the 90% of people that are still employed, that's fine because they can suck up all of the available inventory because there's so little of it. That once we get back to a normal market, what's that going to do? You know, I, if I had a crystal ball, I wouldn't be doing this anymore. So <laughs> it's just when I look at those factors, to me, it just feels like if income is not going to change and rates are not going to go that much lower, and even if they decrease from, let's say, two and a half to one and a half, that 1% rate may change basically qualifying power for most people. $50,000, $60,000, is that the top end of appreciation that we're going to see? Because the likelihood is, you know, 
we're rates will probably go back up versus down because when instability kind of happens, people seek flight to quality, right? It's the same reason why gold goes up in kind of sketchy times. Um, I think there's a demographic shift that is happening that we're not really talking about. The reality is we talk about Gen X, Gen Z, and you know, these, this massive generation, but the first massive generation was the baby boomers. And they're now at the age of retirement. And the interesting thing is baby boomers actually own like 35% of all homes in the United States is one generation. Hmm. And when they slowly basically, you know, move on, what's going to happen is that inventory comes to market because most of it is going to their kids to Gen X, the smallest generation. That wealth doesn't transfer an entire, doesn't jump an entire generation. It's the generation between Gen X, my generation, we're the smallest. There's not enough of us to basically backfill and take up that inventory. So now all of a sudden you have an issue of, you have millennials and you know, uh, Gen Z that are saddled with a lot of student loan debt, right? Income's pretty flat. Um, and prices that are currently low, not necessarily changing very much, and a lot more inventory comes to market. So if everything stays the same, maybe we get flat line of property values, right? And how long does that last for? Until we get a bunch of inventory and not enough buyers on the back end. You know, so you brought up an interesting stat the other day, which was, um, and this yeah. is, again, is another unknown, right? Which mm -hmm. is... The amount of, it was uh, 18 to 24 year olds living at home, mm -hmm. right? Rent free. 52%. 52%, right? So does that generation accumulate a bunch of savings, pay down debt, do all these things and increase ability for their downline? I don't know. Does it increase their desire to be homeowners or are we creating a situation? Has the pandemic created a situation much like Europe and most of the world, well, all of a sudden we're going to become multi-generational families or multi-generational households instead of everyone just saying like, hey, you go there, mom and dad, I want my own space. You know, is there value? Has this been serious enough? Is it tapping down to the core of Maslow's hierarchy of needs that we want that security and sanctity of family and relationships around us? Hmm. Interesting. <laughs> interesting. You know, and, and so, well, I was going to ask you, uh, so you mentioned that, okay, so th that, that's, you're covering a lot of, a lot of space there. And, and, you know, at one side of it, you say that, you know, this baby boomer generation, we're going to have all of this inventory, let's just say that's, you know, when they pass away or move on to, to, to old folks homes, uh, you're going to have all these homes and there's not enough Gen Xers, which I think I'm in the Gen X. I'm 70. I'm right. born in 77. And there's not enough of us to take over those homes. So yeah. where does it go? But then on the other side of the coin, you've got this potential thought process of you're not going to have a need for all these homes because people are going to be living more together. Maybe. What? And that, what that's what we don't know, right? <laughs> but you have to take all of the signals and the trends that you're seeing around you because demographics is, doesn't care about the economy, right? Babies that are born are going to need diapers. 
and families that have those kids are going to need, you know, additional rooms and there's going to need schooling. And just like if you have a massive demographic shift of people passing away, there'll be a lot more funerals and cemeteries and senior living homes, which you've seen, you know, this massive increase, people getting ahead of that. So now when you look at those kind of demographic trends, that's really important. And it's a kind of a key indicator because what I think you're going to see end up happening is most Gen Xers and people that have, you know, brothers and sisters, when their parents pass on, if there is, you know, multiple assets that are part of that kind of pass down, a lot of times they're like, hey, I don't want to fight. Just fire sell this thing and give me the money. <laughs> so the reality is because baby boomers bought closer to city centers because they got into real estate significantly earlier than anybody else, there's much more value. Their assets are worth a lot more, right? So it's the higher end of property. So now you've got higher end property. Do we have like a possible outside in slowing of property values, meaning the top end starts to go down slowly over time? Right. And what happens is when the news says like, oh, that three million dollar house in Beverly Hills just sold for one point five million. The guy who's sitting in his five hundred thousand dollar house goes, "Ooh, is my house going to go down because it's the wealthier getting their butt handed to him and my next. Right. So you get this kind of outside in. So meaning from the coast moving its way inside. And you see this in New York right now with, you know, historic high rental rates or property vacancy. Basically, I think there's 14 or 15,000 vacant units right now sitting in New York City. And, you know, these are not cheap apartments. <laughs> these are not cheap rents. So you have lots of factors that are so kind of unknown. But, you know, you have a demographic thing that no matter what, people of a certain age are going to do certain things, right? Doesn't matter what's going to take place. So we're going to have, probably have a baby boom that's going to happen because of COVID babies. Right. So that will come, but that's not going to affect housing for, you know, seven, eight, nine, 10 years, most likely. Yeah. So where are things going to go? The biggest impact to property values is rates. If rates go up, property values come down and you don't need to look any further than let's say October, 2018, 2000. Uh, yeah. October, November, 2018, when rates went up about a half to three quarters of a percent and the market just completely stalled for basically the next four months. Because if I'm a consumer and at you know 4%, I am qualified for $300,000 for sake of conversation. And now all of a sudden rates go to 5%. So now my nut goes up 20, you know, $250 a month, which is basically 3,000, 1%, 3,000 divided by 12. Now all of a sudden that $250 worth of financed or finance, uh, mortgage finance, that's like 60 or 70,000 bucks, right? So what I, if I was looking at 300 and now all of a sudden I go, uh-oh, I can only look at 250. We already know how home buyers are, right? You tell them they're qualified for 300, they write an offer for 315. <laughs> yep. So that really stalls out the market really, really quickly. So, you know, we just have so many unknowns from an economic standpoint. You know, I think we're still a little bit on a honeymoon of like, what is the real economic impact of this? Are jobs going to come back? I don't think so, because the reality is when you're forced into a situation, you have something that is called, func uh, it's basically what it means is like businesses learn how to do more with less, right? And they learn how to do more with less 
in the sense of they turn back around and they are able to realize like, hey, I don't need 20 people to do this job. I like have these computers and I have these Zoom calls and I figured out how to do it with 10 people. Why are they going to hire the, 10, the other 10 back, right? right? And I'll give you a really simple story about this. Those of you that are old enough, you remember going to McDonald's, right? Maybe working at McDonald's and there was a fry person and then there was a drink person and then there was the person that worked the drive through and then the person that, you know, flipped the burgers, bagged them and the front counter cash register person. And look at one little piece of technology, little remote control headset on the side of their hip, right? Efficiency through technology. And all of a sudden, they eliminated four or five jobs, right? And all of a sudden, McDonald's didn't come up, become a place where your kids got their first job. You're seeing plenty, basically, of older adults working there because of the stress that's involved of trying to multitask and put these orders together. Those jobs are not coming back. McDonald's is not going to say, like, hey, we're doing amazing. Let's bring back the fry guy. Right. <laughs> so <laughs> right. most companies are not going to say, hey, if we figured out how to do this well with less people, which is always the most expensive part of running a business, odds are they're not going to bring him back. And this is why Wall Street is still doing amazingly well, right? It's being priced into values of stock because what people believe is happening is like, hey, this newfound efficiency that these companies have is going to affect the bottom P&L, mm -hmm. right? They're going to make more money because there's more productivity per person. And so, I don't know, it's just that we're in a, a weird time. Lots of different signals in there. You just got to take them all in and, and you know, look locally. Because locally is going to tell you what's going to happen to your business. Well, and right? even, we could talk about real estate as a, as a, a broad sense, but the reality is it's still local. Yeah, but I think I think what happens on a broad sense will dial in onto most local markets. Oh, sure. Not all, not all, but but most. Yeah. But you and you the didn't even mention the micro. Correct. Correct. <laughs> correct. But but you know you didn't even mention you mentioned how the job issue, but you didn't even mention the the commercial real estate piece because like you mentioned you know, we're coming out of this. I mean, I, I, for one, you know, I have a mortgage office where I own the building. If I didn't own the building and my lease was coming up, I probably would just let it go because we're right. perfectly functional. Now I know every industry is not that way, but there's, if you took a hundred industries or a hundred, you know, uh, uh, companies, 50 yep. of them are just like me. And they're like, right. I don't need the space anymore. Yeah. And yeah, what, no, what kind of impact if we're, that in a, if we're in a knowledge economy now, Right. Thing is that knowledge economy is done online most of the time anyway. So it, it does kind of make some pretty big changes there. So, yeah, it's uh, it's just a really, really interesting time. You know, I think that commercial could be a leading indicator. Like when people start seeing commercial property go down in value, how does that impact or translate down to the trickle down effect to residential? I'm not really sure. Anecdotally right now, I do know that homeowner or, you know, small property investors, guys that own, you know, two units, three units, four units, five units, six units, seven units, those guys are hurting because they haven't collected a dime of rent in a lot of situations for the last six or seven months, right? Now, some of those people don't, are not fortunate enough to have mortgage forbearance kick in for them because their loan was not Fannie and Freddie or government insured to begin with. And so that forbearance rules, when you read the CARES Act, it's pretty narrow in scope, right? So the investor may be left out to dry. And I have a feeling that that's going to leave some sour taste in some people's mouths because they're going to be like, hey, listen, 
I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna, you know, be a landlord anymore. Like think of all of those little single family homes around universities where people depend on this kind of high turnover, high rent, in and out, in and out. I mean, that entire industry is pretty much imploded yeah. <laughs> if we don't go back to school yeah. at a university level. So, so there's lots of wow. things that are happening. You know, it's really hard to predict. Uh, my, you know, the only options that I can say is just keep a really tight pulse and watch, you know, changes in rates and things like that because you have supply, you have demand, but you also have to have ability. And anything that affects ability is going to have a bigger impact on supply and demand. And that's just kind of the reality. Okay. Okay. So, so we've, we've just picked your brain a little bit and, and we've gotten, <laughs> we've gotten, I think the audience has got a pretty good sense of what I'm talking about when I say brilliance and, and just the way your mind works. It's, it's like I said, it's, it's, it's fascinating because you're spouting off and a lot of you aren't watching this, but I know um, like for me, if I have this conversation, which I could have the same conversation with a lot of people, I'm, I'm Googling some of this stuff because it just doesn't rattle off the top of my head like it does for Jesse. Um, <laughs> but, it just, but it just rattles off the top of his head. So now, Jesse, now that you've given us all of this, you know, data, uh, let's say. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, and I know that you obviously, like you said, you would be in a different career if, if you could predict what the future holds. But I want to know. And I think some of our listeners want to know, what does Jesse think? Like, what do you anticipate? What do you think is going to happen uh, in the next six months in real estate? And what is, what is the best advice that you would give? Let's just say you own a brokerage. A brokerage right. falls in your lap tomorrow. Sam Karamian just hands it to you. You have big block. What are you going to teach? What are you going to preach to your agents? What's coming? What should they be doing? You know, I think the first thing I'm going to teach is probably being empathetic. And this sounds kind of funny, but I think that when the markets are good, our sales skills as humans, we become order takers versus being consultants. And the reality is that when you're busy, you stop talking to the people that need the most help from you because there's so many other people that you can help. So the first thing I would probably say is to become, you know, really empathetic, really work on emotional intelligence, really work on skills. Number two, I would work on developing solutions, developing relationships with banks, understanding short sales, understanding REOs, and kind of prepare for what could be the worst case scenario. It's obviously not what you want, but definitely prepare around that. And last but not least, I think just like every other industry is becoming hyper-efficient, meaning being able to do more with less, I think it's going to be really important for the agents that are still in business to be hyper-efficient because you can no longer going forward, the overall trend seems to be that you're not able to buy leads on demand. And what I mean by this is that if you look at like, let's say Zillow or some of the portals, they are transitioning to referral fee models, right? And at the last uh, Zillow conference that I was at, the very first Zillow Unlocked, you know, I heard some stats that were kind of thrown out there and it was that there was about 15 million leads a year generated by Zillow. Right. And in the years prior to that, 
what would happen is we know that the National Association of Realtors, that the average person will look at 10 homes over 10 weeks. And if they're doing that online, a lot of times they're doing that with different agents. Okay. So what's going to end up happening in my mind as these portals get into the lead follow-up game and the lead nurture game, not just lead generation, because they've already mastered that. They've already won that on the national level, not on the, on the macro level, right? At the local level, agents can still dominate this all day long, right? There's a huge opportunity there around video content and stuff like that, things that you basically teach. And so I think there's a massive opportunity there. But those companies that are dependent upon a volume button of like, hey, let's just buy leads. If I get like a 2.5 X return on my money, you know, I net one X out of that. I'm good with that. And I could just buy more leads. Well, if your business is not set up to be able to work on a 35% referral fee going forward with less volume and your previous competitive advantage was, hey, I have speed to lead and that's it. Like that is going away because speed to lead is no longer an issue because the portals are bringing all of that in-house. Look at what OpCity is doing. Look at what Zillow is doing. So what we're getting is what is that leftover, right? Is those handoffs that are coming to us. So what happens if there's about 5.5 million transactions a year that are happening, 10, 11 million sides altogether, we know that the portals at a macro level have total you know, dominance on that. That's the starting point for most people. But what's going to end up happening is, you know, 42, 43% of people that find a home online, according to National Association of Realtors, they get in the car and drive the neighborhood. And they go to the front of that listing and they take a look at the neighborhood. They go, hey, that guy across the street, you know, house looks pretty nice. I wouldn't mind waking up and looking at my neighbor, right? Because that's what you're seeing. You don't see your own house when you're living in your house. You're seeing everybody else's houses. So although we buy a house for the house, you're really buying the neighborhood first. So the consumers are going to those properties. And so I think that agents are not maximizing those opportunities of people getting in the, in, in the cars and driving in front and answering their phones and capturing all of those opportunities. The portals are working on trying to capture that with scheduled tours and stuff like that. But efficiency, efficiency and follow-up and being able to scale because you're directly going to be competing against the portals. If you cannot out-nurture and out-follow-up Zillow, you're, that same lead is just going to stay in Zillow's ecosystem or Redfin or OpCity or whoever it might be until they resurface and are handed back out for a 35% opportunity. And, you know, if you're looking at some of the deals right now, there's some golden handcuffs that come with some of those as well, right? <laughs> it's like a, a two-year referral fee model and, you know, one line down on a referral and so on and so forth. So you got to get good at capturing every opportunity, the stuff that we took for granted, meaning phone calls, which is the highest intent, text message inquiries, got to have that basically dialed in to capture all of those opportunities be less dependent upon online leads because that is slowly going away. The portals are no longer selling that as much. And so what's happening is we're all left fending on our own and we're using platforms, you know, like 
Facebook lead ads and Google PPC and stuff like that. So what's happening is those costs, those lead costs are going to go up and you need to be just as efficient to convert those because you're no longer just competing against your local agents on the follow-up. You're competing at the national level against these large scale companies. And so efficiency, lead capture opportunities, um, I think are going to be critical and an empathetic and high emotional intelligence because more than ever, people value professionalism, I think, more than ever now. And in uncertain times, that's what people seek, mm-hmm. right? Is not an order taker. It's going to be someone who's going to consult them, have an empathetic ear, ask the right questions, and earn basically, A, the ability to build rapport, because when you're in rapport, they're going to ask questions. They're going to give you time. And when you answer those questions, you're able to show your knowledge. And that knowledge then reinforces the cycle about building more trust. And those three qualities, rapport, knowledge, honesty, and trust, or four qualities, are what National Association of Realtors, a bunch of studies on this, that is what consumers are looking for in a real estate agent. Yeah. More yeah, valuable than ever. So, so on those three points, uh, w- one more follow-up question to that. So, sure. you know, you, you mentioned so so empathy and and kind of authenticity. I think is another word that comes yep. to mind, and 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 allowing the consumer to kind of know you before they actually know you. This is really important, or giving them the opportunity to go quote unquote stalk you and like you without actually knowing you. And everybody knows where I'm going with this part, but I want your mm-hmm. opinion. Uh, because for me, there's no better tool or, or, or conduit than, than social media, than, than creating a brand and being very visible sure. on social media. But uh, for that first one, and I'm going to ask you for each, each one of these um, with, with a purpose, but number one, what, so what is, in your opinion, the best way to, 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 to increase or, or, or level up on the empathy game? You know, I think it's putting out marketing materials that make you seem like you understand the consumer journey and the pains of the consumer journey. I have a thing I call the art funnel. And so if you think, you know, there's lots of talks of funnels, right? Like, oh, I got this funnel. I'm going to drop the consumers in and they're going to come out at the bottom end and it'll be a deal. Well, in that funnel, there's several different stages. And then the way that I've best defined it over the last you know, five or six years or so, most presentations that I've given is I call it the art funnel. So A, the top of the funnel, stands for aspirational. The middle of the funnel, R, stands for research. The bottom of the funnel is T for transactional. And understanding that funnel from top to bottom truly is an art. And the only way that you can do really powerful marketing is by tapping into and asking questions and answering questions at each one of those individual stages, right? And this could be done through video content. It could be done through, you know, social media posts could be done through any of that stuff, but If you put out content that seems authentic and is addressing the need that that person has in their mind at each one of those stages, because social media and the online as a whole is oftentimes um, almost directly connected to someone's thoughts, 
right? Oftentimes, how often have you searched for information before you told anybody about it, right? So it's almost subconscious in its way that you're, um, that you're using those channels. So if you are thinking of how is my consumer thinking at each one of those stages, you could put out content that is on point and will start to attract basically people. And what it does is it instantly builds trust because they know that you are listening. They are already in rapport because they feel that this person understands me based on the materials that they are putting out. Mm. And that, you know, is really key on that, that very first step. Um, just from an SEO kind of tactical kind of question, I always tell people, you know, because SEO seems like this black box and the easiest way that I've you know, determined to try and, and solve this for people is I say, remember those days when you used to be able to go into a bookstore hmm. and you would walk into a bookstore and you'd say like, I'm into motorcycles. So I'd go like, Hey, I'm into motorcycles. Right. So where's the motorcycle and car section. So they would tell you like over there, section B4. Right. And you would get to B4. And then what would happen is you would look at all the books and you would look at all the spines of all those books. Right. And the headline or the book title is the headline. Right. So think of how you pick that, that book. So if I was into early Harley Davidson's right into a very specific era, shovelhead Harley Davidson's, what I'm looking for is I'm reading all of those spines, right. Walking down with your head sideways and reading all those spines. And you're just looking for those keywords to kind of pop out at you. Right. And this is understanding that consumer journey. Love it. You would pull out the two or three books that look the best. And when you, thumb through it, what you're looking at is a table of contents. And does this have one chapter about this kind of motorcycle or is the entire book about that one motorcycle, right? And the more focused that that content is, the more likely that that person would buy that book. Think of your own consumer journey. So if you understand the art funnel, people are using the internet and social media as their library, right? So they are starting off with broad searches show me the motorcycle section, right? And then basically they're starting to narrow down that funnel and get into like the very tactical and specific things, the research phase, like how do I rebuild a 1983 Harley Davidson, right? Or restoring a 1983 Harley Davidson shovelhead motor. And so that's what's going to be that middle funnel, right? And then maybe transactional kind of books would be like, you know, average uh, the NADA guide on the historical values of those motorcycles at auction, right? Because now I'm in transactional phase. So the beginning might be like, how hard is it to restore an old motorcycle? Research. Can't, you know, what are the steps to re restore basically this vintage motorcycle of this year and era? And then the bottom is what's the value of this, uh, you know, the cost of the parts or the value of that motorcycle when it's all completed? And that's kind of an art funnel in a really simple way. In that art funnel, to transition from research to transactional, I have this chart and it's basically a quadrant, right? You guys probably have seen these kind of charts where it's like four squares. Mm -hmm. And so one side um, is at the bottom left-hand corner is A for aspirational. The top two far extremes are R for research and the very top right-hand corner, the hockey stick part of it is transactional, right? So what happens across that bottom, um, the Y-axis and the X-axis, one basically is ability and the other one is motivation. 
So if you think of when people are in research, they're either really motivated and they're researching, trying to figure out if they have the ability, or they have the ability and are trying to research if they should buy, in other words, trying to increase the motivation. And when you have both ability and motivation fully primed and peaked, and you provided the content around that art funnel, then basically people are going to move into transactional. Hmm. Dude. Right. So I, some I love simple, yes. Well, the art funnel. And you know what I think of? The, the first the word that comes to mind in the beginning, and then even as you were telling, as you were doing this and explaining it, is, is telling stories, is, is becoming a better storyteller. Um, but using those, those three pillars, uh, kind of as your content pillars, which is your art, you know, which is your acronym, yep. which is the aspirational yep. research. That's awesome. So we're, I, I want to move on from that because we're running out of time. Sure. So uh, what, would be, what would be your best piece of advice for someone who wants to level up and learn more about short sales, REO, that sort of thing that, that doesn't have a lot of experience there? Seek the masters. <laughs> right. Answer. You want to go out and talk to those people that were bank REO managers back in the day. You know, a lot of these people are running mega teams right now. So, and most people who are fairly successful are usually going to be pretty open because they've gone through those kind of schools of hard knocks and they understand that that knowledge needs to be out there. And then it's a lot of it is relationship and details. Right. It's like if, you know, use the mortgage explanation to you, like knowing your guidelines in the mortgage business is like the the end all be all of if you're a good loan officer or a not good loan officer. So if you are going to get into those markets, understand the guidelines. What are the companies looking for to put those deals together and be hyper realistic uh, in terms of the information that you're sharing or the guidance that you're sharing to other people, right? Because we still don't know exactly where all of this is going to go. And mm-hmm. so this is just building that ammunition right now, developing those relationships, doing your research. You know, if you just pencil off a half an hour, you know, a day for an entire month, <laughs> you could assign 10 hours to figure out very quickly what does it take to put uh, you know, a short sale deal together? And you can look at historical information, go to groups like lab code agents, use the little you know, top search corner, search in there, short sales. How do you do a short sale? And there's going to be tons of articles. Don't go back in there and repost because fresh stuff is going to be different, right? There's still people doing these deals and you can find some of them, but find all of those old blog posts that are related to that or those old social media posts that are related to that. And you should have some pretty clear guidelines in terms of what needs to be done. That's, that's, and then reach out to the banks directly. That's great advice. I, I just like that search uh, concept because I don't think a lot of people use it. That's, that's really good. <laughs> yeah. um, and, and I just want to yeah. say this. I want to say this. What you CRM just... do you use? <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. It's funny you say that. I actually need to do that post, but from a lender perspective. Um, and speaking of the lender perspective, you said, the uh, barometer of if you're a good loan officer is if you know guidelines, which means I'm a really crappy loan officer because never once in my career have I been a guideline guy. I just surrounded myself <laughs> with really smart people or had smart partners who I could turn to because I hated those details. I'm the relationship right. guy. Um, yeah. It's funny that um, you said that. Okay, lastly, the hyper-efficient piece, uh, the follow-up piece. I know where I want you to go with this real quickly, just to sum it up in, in less than five minutes because that's all you've got left. Is, sure. um, you know, 
uh, call action is is arguably, and and I'm I'm familiar with a lot of these platforms. It's one of the most robust, one of the sexier uh, automation tools that exist in the industry. Uh, tell our audience a little bit more about it and why it's such an awesome tool. I know you're biased, sure. but 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 that's okay because I'm asking you. <laughs> but, but that's but that's what uh, we're talking about when it comes to efficiency, right? Is automation right. those sort of things? So, so tell us a little sure. bit more about call action. Well, you know, for those of you that are listening, I'm going to have you pull out a piece of paper and a pencil. And let's just basically do some, some mental math really, really quickly. I'm going to have you write down whatever amount of leads per month that you generate. There's no right or wrong answers. But for simple mental math, I'm going to just say 100 leads a month. What we know, there's lots of data, there's MIT studies on this. We have you know, millions of data points around this. We know that when you generate a brand new lead, it takes on average eight follow-up attempts before you make contact. So what's gonna happen is if I generate 100 leads, how many follow-up attempts does that create? So do basically that math and write it down on a piece of paper. So in this case, let's just say it's 800 follow-up attempts is what it takes. Now, just mentally, you kind of think, how long does it take for me to log into my CRM, look at a record, click the call button or draft the text message, hit send, and do that piece of follow-up? Maybe it's five minutes, maybe it's two minutes, and I'll just use two minutes for sake of conversation. So all of a sudden, I've got 1,600 minutes if I do it one every two minutes, Right? 1,600 minutes, that is 25-ish hours worth of follow-up on 100 leads. Now, what ends up happening, there's only 160 hours of 40-hour work weeks. Right? So this is nearly a little bit more than an eighth you know, of your time spent just doing follow-up on new leads. Now, here's the thing, is lead follow-up is infinite. It lasts forever. Doesn't matter if the guy doesn't buy now, you're going to follow up with them in the future. If they do buy right now, you're still going to follow up in the future, or you should. <laughs> That's how you're going to get SOI business, right? So the reality is month one, you have 1,600 tasks. Month two, I generate another 100 leads, which is another 1,600 tasks. But now I have all of those people that I still need to stay in touch with, and they're going to still require seven or eight follow-up attempts. Some of them will be this month. Some of them will be next month. Some of them will be the month after that. But the reality is all of them will need to touch at least once every three months or so. So very soon, what ends up happening at just 100 leads a month, after three to five months, you've got six, seven, eight, 10,000 tasks per month just to stay on top of following up with those particular leads at two minutes a piece, 20,000 minutes, all of a sudden you're at 300 hours and you are no longer scalable. So what happens is people skim off the top and what they do is they generate leads and they make those calls for that first one to three weeks. And the data basically shows that about seven or 8% of leads as a whole are gonna buy a house in that first one to three months or one to three weeks. Just depends if you caught them at the very bottom of that funnel, right? What their intent was when they made the inquiry. Did they search for a list of available homes under 500,000 or did they say, I wanna see this house today, right? Different intent on both of those um, 
schedules there. What we do is we give you the ability to automate all of that outbound that normally shows up in your to-do list, in your task list, and we eliminate all of the data entry of notes, the dialing of the calls and drafting of the text messages and all of those kinds of things so that what happens is you can, after three months, have 10,000 follow-ups that are automated that are going out and reaching out to these customers that you've created a relationship with. And then a small percentage of them every month will start basically responding when they're ready to have that conversation. Because there's a big difference between me reaching someone and interrupting them versus them calling me. Mm -hmm. When they call you, they are hyper-focused on achieving that goal. They're in that art funnel, they're in research or transactional, and they're focused, which basically means they're paying attention, right? Versus you reaching out, they could be distracted, they're not paying attention, and they're just basically being pleasant. So in our mind, the most important thing is creating scalable solutions to follow up at scale, right? No different than Zoom just gave the ability for you to have five meetings a day or 10 meetings a day Mm -hmm. just by efficiency. And most of us became actually better business people because of this, because what happens is necessity is the mother of innovation, right? But why wait until necessity to become hyper-efficient? Because the less leads that are available, because you're directly competing against behemoth companies that are going to have these systems in place to automate follow-up at scale and create relationships at scale, you're going to be competing against them. And once you're desperate enough, you're going to need to tap into that ability to basically do follow-up and develop as many relationships as possible and keep those inbound conversations happening to you. Because if you don't have time to handle the 50 phone calls that are going to come in, how are you going to make the time to make the 400 outbounds to get to those 50? Yeah. Right. You're not. So, so call action just helps you do that. We try to eliminate the to-do list using automation. We are act as your insurance to make sure things get done. We eliminate all of the inefficient things like data entry and note-taking, which historically has been proven that that alone is about, represents about 30% of people's times behind a, com- a computer is just doing data entry. And we're not data entry people. We are salespeople. And in sales, we need to talk to people. So only conversations matter. And if those conversations are coming to you versus you chasing after them, you now have an extremely scalable business. And that's how you're going to be in business kind of going forward is just by mastering conversations. Dude, callaction.co is the website. You need to go check this out. I know Jesse's got to go. So I'm going to wrap up quickly here again, oh. callaction.co. It's not .com, um, <laughs> .co. Right. Um, you, you need to go check this out. And I will tell you this, because I have experience with this. My people have experience with this. When you reach out to call action, many times you're going to have a conversation with Jesse himself. And um, yep. that right there is worth its price in gold. I mean, go check out his site though. Go check out the site callaction.co because uh, there's a lot of data, there's a lot of content on it to talk about the solutions and the benefits and all of the things that call action can do for your business. But I tell you what- We also have a pretty solid blog on there that shows you some tips and things like that. One of your favorite ones was those 41 video ideas. Yes. So yes. use Jeff's learnings 
and our scripts for the 41 ideas to generate basically art funnel leads because each one of those 41 ideas falls into somewhere in that art funnel and execute on those. And then that way you have evergreen content that will last almost forever and be the gift of keep on giving. <laughs> a million percent. Folks, this has been a delight for me. I hope it was a delight for you. Uh, conversations with this man are always super enlightening. Dude, I wish we had another hour, but I know we got to go. So dude, thank we'll you. We'll just do another thank podcast. You. I, you're right. We absolutely need to do that. I, you know what we're going to do is we're going to reconnect, uh, if not uh, on just by chance, uh, we're going to intentionally reconnect after the election, see how things are going, and sure. chat some more about the future of our world together, my friend. Yeah, sounds you good. Have a, you have a wonderful rest of uh, the day, wonderful rest of the month. Thank you so much, and look forward to staying in touch, brother. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Have a great day. If you need anything, feel free to reach out, jessecallaction.co, and I'll give out my phone number just in case you want to call or text 323-741-2255. You'll be able to get a hold of me directly. Just be patient. I do get some calls, some texts, and I will get back to you as soon as I possibly can. All that's, right? That's awesome, dude. Thank you so much, brother. Take Thanks, care, guys. man. Have a great day. Bye now. Agents Podcast.